This is an audio cast of the Frontline Special Series, My Brother's Bomber, Part 3, broadcast October 13th on PBS. It was one of the worst terrorist attacks before 9-11. Pan Am Flight 103 plunged into a small Scottish town. Tonight, Frontline presents... All these years later, the case is still open. The final chapter of this special series. The government has moved on. The FBI has moved on. Filmmaker Ken Dornstein's search for those responsible for the murder of 270 people, including his brother. Frontline is made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major support for Frontline is provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is available at macfound.org. Additional support is provided by the Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The John and Helen Glessner Family Trust, supporting trustworthy journalism that informs and inspires. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. The Wincoat Foundation, and by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major support from John and Joanne Hagler. Corporate funding for Frontline is provided by... The future of surgery is within sight. Our research is studying how real-time multimodality imaging during surgery can help precision and outcomes. Brigham and Women's Hospital, it all starts here. Previously on My Brother's Bomber, there was a man there and he was still in the same office, same place where the timer that they say had blown up Flight 103. Wow. It looks suspicious. I, I, yes. Like you are helping I, I, the Libyans make I, I, the bomb that blew up Flight 103. No, 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 no. I just want one person to tell me that the story is true and I'll let it drop. I don't need right. the whole picture. I just want one guy. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like I'd be done. Am I going to make a scene and go into the room and say, did you murder my brother? Of course, you don't bring a bomb as a bomb. You have to put it together. There was a bomb expert. A Libyan bomb expert, yes. So the hunt is on for Abu Aguila, if he's still alive. Ken Skypes with his family. Dad, we can't actually even see your eyes. We could just see your nose and mouth. Oh. Move down. Move down. Uh, I'm there too. Yeah. Where are you now? <laughs> we, do you even know where Dad is? Washington. Yeah. Washington, D.C. So okay, what are you doing in Washington? Washington? That's a really good question. Well, there's going to be a whole uh, ceremony at a big cemetery. Do you know there's like the one national cemetery? Yeah. Arlington National Cemetery, they put up a, a monument for this bombing that killed Uncle David. And now, 25 years later, all the families are gonna come and, and uh, 
and I'm gonna show up for Uncle David. Can you guys imagine still caring about a story even 25 years later, like? Yes. Yes. Yeah? Yeah. If it made my brother die. Yeah. 25 years ago tomorrow, four days before Christmas, a bomb exploded aboard a Pan Am jetliner over Lockerbie, Scotland. All 259 on board, mostly Americans, and 11 on the ground were killed. And on this anniversary, they will gather once more, mindful that 25 years later, justice has not been done for those lost at Lockerbie. It's hard to believe that a quarter of a century has gone by and the family members are still asking why, still asking what happened. In the past few minutes, a moment of silence has been held in London, Lockerbie and Arlington Cemetery to mark the time at three minutes past seven in 1988 when the bomb exploded on board. As they gathered around the memorial in Arlington National Cemetery, a bell was rung as the name of each victim was read aloud. Former FBI investigator Richard Marquise. Well, Lockerbie's been a huge part of my life. Yeah. And always will be. Mine too. Yeah, I, I get that. Because I've been on this trail for a while, you know, trying to find the few guys left who were probably on your list. Yep. Someone told me recently that the U.S. government still wants to try to find out more things about Lockerbie. So I feel good about that. This is an FBI agent telling me that. He said, we were going to go to conduct additional investigation. I hope it's true. I hope when Mueller leaves uh, the Bureau next year that it doesn't stop. Through the years, Robert Mueller has joined families in honoring the victims. 25 years later, Mueller says the hunt for the bombers goes on. There are a number of people that we are still seeking. This investigation is ongoing, and we will uh, do what we can to assure that others involved in some way, shape, or form are uh, prosecuted and uh, successfully tried. The aircraft came out of the sky, trailing flames, scattering wreckage, fuel, and passengers. A crater 20 feet deep marks the spot near the main Glasgow road where the jumbo jet came down. The bomb was so powerful... 25 years later, why is it that some people can make a kind of peace with it and other people keep digging around for the truth or justice or the facts or the perpetrators? Dr. Jim Swire. Why do we have to do it? I don't know the answer to that. I suppose it's partly the type of people we are. In my case, I think the campaign has also been the way of coping with the loss of dearly loved daughter. Um, but I suppose you have to balance the harm it's doing to you and those you love against the good that it might produce in the end if you can crack it. There were times I wished I'd never gone to Libya, that I'd never reopened all these questions. Lockerbie had become a puzzle that I told myself I was always just on the verge of solving. But there was always a missing piece. In the end, I decided to limit my focus to just one of the suspects on my list. The mystery man who was on the same flight with the convicted bomber, McGrahi, on the morning of Lockerbie. 
and may well have been with him the day he returned home. The man I suspected of being the Libyan's bomb expert. Tell me about this Masoud Abu Aguila. Yeah, we were very keen to account for his movements. Former Scottish investigator Stuart Henderson. He would pop up in various places. He very much was explosives-wise. Uh, deeply involved in it. Richard Marquis. Abu Aguila Masood, I think is what we always called it. Right. Was he someone that you actually spoke about, you know, during the investigation? Absolutely. There was an intelligence assessment at the time that he was a technical expert, and we just could never identify him. I mean, it, the, the guy just was sort of a ghost, and nobody, nobody would acknowledge him. Even after the Scots went to Libya in 1999, and they asked about Massoud, they said they never heard of him. But if you could figure out who he was, he was probably important. Yeah, absolutely. He was somebody that maybe had something to do with arming the bomb. The U.S. military, of course, helped with the downfall of the Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi. But since then, Libya has become a country without laws. Tripoli, Libya, 2012. It was now my third time into the country. This time, though, I was looking mainly for one thing, to pick up the trail of the Libyan bomb expert, Abu Aguila. But things here had changed pretty significantly, my friend Suleiman told me. I mean, what was the security picture at that point? Non-existent. Uh, you know, there were so many groups fighting for terror. I mean, the government was trying to take control of the armed groups, but the armed groups were, you know, overwhelming them. I mean, Tripoli was, uh, was very difficult at that time because there were nightly clashes, there were, you know, small militias fighting for, hit, you know, this headquarter and that headquarter, and then you have the out-of-town militias, you know, who have their own turfs uh, in different parts of the city. It was just, uh, it was crazy. I still wanted to find out something official about Abu Aguila, but now I would need the help of one of the dozens of militias that controlled Tripoli. Their driver tells the guard at a checkpoint, we're with journalists and we have an appointment. The guard waves them through. Everybody has a militia and everybody's ruling a neighborhood and everybody's doing whatever the hell they want. World Bank advisor Hafed al -Gwell. There's no central authority, there's no clarity of who's in charge. Warehouse. See? Even the files of the old intelligence services and the official files of Gaddafi are, have disappeared. Um, I know some militias who are selling them in pieces. There's a warehouse in Tripoli where you can go and you pay a certain fee at the door and you go into this warehouse where there are piles of official papers. Some of them are completely insignificant, some of them are significant. And you go in there and you dig for whatever paper you want. Look, count in. Let us see what this I have to check all this, maybe still have something for Gaddafi here. This is police. 
His name, Bashir. I never found the warehouse selling documents that had anything to do with Lockerbie. Look. But I still looked through every paper I could find that might offer a clue about the suspected bomb maker I was looking for. There may be documents out there that yeah. are relevant, but where are they now? I mean, maybe some have been destroyed or just thrown in the garbage because they were old documents and they meant nothing to them. Ken's friend and Libyan journalist, Suleiman Ali's way. To find those names in the, is like finding a, a needle in a, you know, in the middle of hay. So it's, it was, it was difficult. I remember the, the, the frustration of the last trip. We were really depressed about, you know, the rise of militias and Islamic extremists and whatnot. The stability. Uh, you know, for Libyans, we took that for granted. I think everybody in, uh, in the world takes it for granted. But once it's taken from you, you know, the lawlessness, basically, if something happens to you, there's nobody that you can report it to. There's no justice to be had. Then later that year, the news from Libya grew worse. We are coming on the air because we have just learned that the U.S. ambassador to Libya has been killed. It happened overnight. When angry militants stormed the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya, they fired shots, set the building on fire. This is the first U.S. ambassador killed on duty in an attack since 1979. U.S. is very fearful this will continue. They consider this an extremely dangerous situation. It's really sad to see that a country that had the opportunity to really start a whole new process and had the money. Libya was not Egypt or Tunisia. Libya had oil pumping, you know, every day. But then, you know, it sort of descended into this real mess. I mean, I'm telling you, inside Libya, there is, there is no way you're going to figure this Lockerbie thing out. The only place that I will advise anybody investigating this is to go through the people from the Gaddafi regime who fled the country. A lot of them left. Libya was no longer where I was likely to find the men I was looking for. I couldn't pick up any trace of the suspected bomb expert, Abu Aguila. But I heard rumors that another of the men on my list, someone with a record of supplying explosives to terrorists, had fled the country, maybe to Cairo. But his trail had gone cold too. There was one major figure on my list who definitely fled the country. And not long after my last trip into Libya, he was finally captured and brought back for trial. It was a humbling return home for Abdullah al-Salusi, once one of the most feared people in the country, now surrounded by Libyans chanting for justice and revenge. Salusi is alleged to have been one of the masterminds behind the Lockerbie attack. I felt sure Salusi knew the truth about Lockerbie, but would he ever tell it? And what about the rest of these three dozen men on trial? What did they know? I've been in contact with someone who knew many of these former Qaddafi officials personally, a Libya expert named Hafed al-Gwel. These men believe I didn't do anything wrong. I was a part of a government. I represented my, my nation. Um, and I'm, you know, I don't believe I did anything wrong. I mean, some of these guys killed for Qaddafi. 
you know, in the 70s and 80s, Gaddafi knew they will always be loyal to him because everything they have comes from him. The Reagan administration sees Colonel Gaddafi as public enemy number one because he supports worldwide terrorism. This mad dog of the Middle East has a goal of a world revolution, Muslim fundamental. The seeds of Lockerbie, I've come to believe, were sown during the days when President Reagan and Muammar Gaddafi became locked in an escalating war of words and attacks. The leaders of the Western world have called you a terrorist, Colonel Gaddafi. Your government is a terrorist government. Reagan is the biggest terrorist in the world. Dressed in a designer jumpsuit and sporting sunglasses... How did this guy come to be known to Americans, you know, as this almost cartoonish but dangerous figure? This is the persona Gaddafi wanted. This is how I'm going to make a mark on the world stage. And he started picking fights with the Nazis. For no reason. The eye jacket is uh, preparing for another execution in 10 minutes. Former National Security Council official Vincent Canestraro. There was a lot of concern by advisors to the President Reagan at the time that you had to do something about Libya. The Libyan leader, Colonel Gaddafi, is being blamed for hijacking. It was an unceasing series of tests by Gaddafi. Finger of suspicion is pointing hard tonight at Muammar Gaddafi, the Libyan leader, in connection with Wednesday's nightclub explosion. Friday's bloody terrorist attacks on airports in Vienna and Rome. Mr. Gaddafi must know that we will hold him fully accountable for terrorist operations against Americans. Several administration officials fanned out on Capitol Hill. There were policy meetings going on at the White House and the National Security Council, and all I can tell you is that there was a debate between people who wanted to kill Gaddafi and people who just wanted to scare him. Gaddafi picked the fight. It wasn't the U.S. fault. Uh, the fault of the U.S. is it reacted to it. It was called Operation El Dorado Canyon. The attack on Libya almost 24 hours ago has left many Libyans dead or injured. Last night's raid took a heavy toll here. Libyan officials admit the... We bombed Libya because this was the last straw in a whole series of things that Gaddafi had done. I warned Colonel Gaddafi we would hold his regime accountable. He did open hostilities, and we closed them. Libyan radio quoted as saying that one of Muammar Gaddafi's houses was hit and... The bombing of 86, it had a huge impact on Gaddafi's psyche. If the Americans were trying to wipe out Colonel Gaddafi's home, they couldn't have got much closer. I mean, it was a 10-minute bombing, right? He disappeared underground. Even his inner circle didn't know exactly where he was for about three and a half months. And I know somebody who, who saw him during that period. He said he was completely devastated. He was in a massive depression and could not believe that no matter what, this is politics. Why are they trying to kill me and kill my family? If the American warplanes were aiming to hit security force headquarters nearby, they missed badly. Instead, they destroyed civilian homes. Before 9-11, that was the only official time I know of that we bombed the country because of terrorism. Was that a good way of dealing with terrorism, go bombing people? I don't think that people generally understood that Pan Am 103 was revenge for that 1986 bombing, but it was. 
Abu Shalgam, one of Colonel Gaddafi's most senior diplomats, ready to talk about revenge. We said that we will attack any place. I think I am clear. I'm speaking Abdul clearly. Rahman Shalgam later renounced Gaddafi. But as Libya's ambassador in Rome back in 1986, he threatened revenge for the U.S. attack. He said Libyan embassies around the world were put on alert to look for American targets. At the end of the day, there was public opinion, or not only Libya and the Arab world, against America at that time. And so the message was, there'll be revenge. Exactly. The mass funeral was for victims of Monday night's air raid. The coffins were carried along to anti-American chants. When America attacked Libya, people died. In Benghazi and Tripoli, 49 persons killed. And you mentioned someone pledging revenge. Yeah, Saeed Rashid is one heads of the Libyan intelligence. In the funeral of the victims, Saeed Rashid spoke. And he swore, he said that we are going to take our revenge. We will kill the Americans. And really he did. He killed Americans. You said if Libya was involved in Lockerbie, Saeed Rashid could have sort of organized it. Yeah, exactly. He is an engineer, so he has knowledge of explosions and uh, remote controls and so. In this case, he is the only one who is level to make the whole program. He could plan out the different exactly. parts of a complicated exactly. operation. Exactly. And Gaddafi has special Shalgam said he tried often to get answers about Lockerbie from key members of the Gaddafi inner circle, like Abdullah Sanusi. I tried to know the truth from Abdullah Sanusi so many times. About Lockerbie? About Lockerbie. And all the time he says, do you believe what they are saying, this propaganda of the Americans? I couldn't find anyone who can say to me, no or yes. But Shalgam was much more certain about the Libyan role in another attack against Americans, two and a half years before Lockerbie. Saeed Rashid, he was behind the attack of, of uh, La Belle in, uh, in Germany. The La Belle Disco. La Belle Disco. It was around 2 a.m. when the bomb went off in the crowded La Belle Discotheque. Police say there were about 500 people inside, many of them off-duty U.S. soldiers. The cycle of revenge that ended in Lockerbie likely began here, in Germany, when U.S. servicemen at a Berlin nightclub were attacked in April of 1986. The evidence is now conclusive that the terrorist bombing of La Belle Discotheque was planned and executed under the direct orders of the Libyan regime. Orders were sent from Tripoli to the Libyan... What interested me were clues that several of the men on my list were also involved in the disco bombing. Said Rashid seems to have led the attack, but was never prosecuted. But there was another man who worked for him on the disco bombing. And this man would ultimately become the most significant figure in my search for answers about Lockerbie. Police have arrested a Libyan man suspected in the 1986 bombing of a discotheque in Berlin, a bombing widely seen as an attack against the United States. The man's name, Muspa Abu Ghassim Etter. The disco where the bomb went off was a hangout for US... As it happened, I was able to track down Muspai Eter in Berlin in 2012, and he was willing to talk with me. My name is uh, Musbah Etir. 
My name is Muspa Iter. I work as a translator and medical consultant for war victims from Libya. I look after them here in Berlin. Muspa Iter had spent years in a German prison for the disco bombing. When I met him, though, his job involved checking up on Libyan revolutionaries injured in the war against Gaddafi. Okay, we're going to film, and, and that's okay. Do you have your permission? Okay. 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 Eter agreed to let me film with him as he made his rounds at the clinics. At this point, he knew I was a journalist who'd been to Libya. But he didn't know that I was interested in what he might be able to tell me about Lockerbie. My hope was to build some trust with Eter first before we settled into our roles as victim and perpetrator. Eter visits with Libyan patients and inquires about their progress. By all accounts, Eter had helped arrange medical treatment for these men in Berlin, and they seemed genuinely grateful. But I wondered if they knew about Eter's ties to the Gaddafi government that they'd just fought so hard to overthrow. I tried myself to understand Eter's past. Muspa Eter arrived in Germany in 1984, an intelligence operative working undercover at the Libyan embassy, along with dozens of others, all of whom were under surveillance by the East German secret police, the Stasi. By late March of 1986, Eter was deeply involved with the plot to bomb the Berlin disco. Some 10 years later, he'd confessed to the German authorities. And it was in that confession where Eter first mentioned a Libyan bomb expert who played a key role in the plot. German prosecutor Detlef Mellis. Eta described a Libyan who brought the bomb and who instructed him how to assemble it, how to put it together in the end, the, the individual parts of an explosive device. So there was a Libyan bomb expert? A Libyan bomb expert, yes. Do you remember the name of that person? Eta always said, uh, referred to him as Abu, Abu Jella. And of course, sorry, as a German prosecutor, I have no idea how to, to spell Abu Jella. Um, I would probably spell it like jelly or something. So I asked him, put it down, please. Uh, and this is what he did. And he wrote neger, black skin. But, but here, here in German, it doesn't have that negative uh, meaning it has in, in the US. It's the only description he wrote there of him, so it must yes. be his most important feature. Yes, yes, yes. That yeah. he's very dark-skinned. Mm-hmm, yeah. Eter's story was credible, it was highly accurate, and it fit in with the information we had obtained through the Stasi files. Haben Sie? Dankeschön. More Labelle files. Yeah, this is only part of it. The Stasi had a lot of information about the Libyans, I guess. The Stasi had a lot of information on the Libyans. The East German secret police, the Stasi, kept a close watch on the Libyans in East Berlin back in the 1980s. And they had the Labelle suspects under close surveillance, before and after the bombing. A lot of the most sensitive files they compiled were likely destroyed. But enough were preserved to help make the case against the Libyans for Labelle. And I was hoping there were still enough documents left to make the key link to Lockerbie. Could, could we see one then? To my surprise, I was able to find Abu Aguila's name all over the Stasi files. 
After the disco bombing, it seemed, he stayed in room 526 of Berlin's Metropole Hotel. He used various code names and aliases, but the Stasi was also able to record his real Libyan passport number, 835004. And this number turned out to be exactly what I was looking for, the missing piece of a puzzle I've been trying to assemble for years. You know, I looked at the Stasi files and I was surprised to see this Abu Gila and his passport number there. Mm -hmm. Because in the Lockerbie case, they were CIA cables that described Abu Gila's name and his role and that showed his passport number and there was a match. Would that surprise you that the bomb expert in LaBelle was also involved in Lockerbie? Of course, I'm not surprised that Abu Jelag would also do the same uh, for, for, for other bombs, including Lockerbie. So what did all of this really mean? I kept coming back to those images I'd gotten out of state TV in Libya. More specifically, I was focused on the man I believed was Abu Agila, there in the back seat greeting Megrahi when he returned home. Records show that Megrahi and Abu Agila were traveling on the same flight several times before Lockerbie, flying in and out of the island of Malta, where the bomb was said to have originated. In the days and weeks before the bombing, the CIA's informant at the Malta airport suspected that Megrahi and Abu Agila were planning some type of special operation. Former FBI investigator Richard Marquis. We, we absolutely were convinced that he was involved and that he may have been the guy that wired up the bomb, that did, that did all the technical stuff with the explosive. But we had no other way. We didn't know who else he was. Right. He, basically, this CIA assessment tells a story. I walked the original Lockerbie investigators through the trail that led me to the Libyan bomb expert. And Masoud Abu Aguila, passport number 835004. It's the same, same one. as the Stasi documents. So Megrahi is traveling twice before Lockerbie with the bomb expert from LaBelle Disco. That's pretty interesting. Would have been great to have known all that. That's amazing. Ken shows the same evidence to former Lockerbie prosecutor Brian Murtaugh. So, so during the LaBelle investigation, they find some Stasi documents. This is from April of 86. This is the week after LaBelle Disco. And then you find this name. Mm -hmm. And you find the passport number. 835004. Is that the same? Yes, it certainly is. There's a solid connection here. There's the same passport number. It's in a hell of a coincidence. And there is a witness in Berlin. His name is Muspa Eter. He's the Libyan who confessed in the LaBelle case who names Abu Gila. He looks like this. And Eter. And, and, and what does he say? He says basically Abu Aguila armed the bomb for yeah, the LaBelle disco. It, it's, in, it's in German, but I'll, I'll give you the, from the English side. I mean, I, you know, if agents brought me this now and, you know, I'm not there. I don't know, and you know what the. But as a prosecutor assessing, what you find out. You find you go talk to this guy. You find out, you know, what he says. You get his story down. You try and figure out how you can corroborate him. I returned to Berlin several times to learn more from Musba Eater. At this point, I told him my brother had been killed in the Lockerbie bombing and that I was hoping he might be able to help me find the truth. Here is the old Libyan embassy in East Germany. The outside. 
he took me to the building where he and Abu Aguila had worked together in the mid-1980s. I lived in an apartment there in the back for five or six months. I was 26 years old, straight from Libya. I was hoping he would tell me more about Lockerbie. But then, in the middle of our filming, Eter struck up a conversation with a businessman who now worked at the old embassy. This was once the Libyan embassy. Did you know that? Yes, we know Gaddafi was here. Does it look different now? I don't know. I wasn't inside with Gaddafi back then. <laughs> ah, you weren't inside back then, but I was. I heard a rumor that the LaBelle disco bombing was planned from this building. This was no rumor. It was organized in this building. I can't believe it. That's true then. Absolutely. It was steered right there from the second floor. Eter persuaded the businessman to take him inside. And back in his old office, Eter kept getting deeper into the details of what he'd done here. From right here, we conducted state terrorism, surveillance of enemies. And from here, we launched the bombing of the Berlin nightclub from the second floor, carrying with it the destruction and murder of the innocent. What we did was wrong, and I admit it. If I could go back in time, I wouldn't have done it. But the pressure from the state and the direct orders from the security services were the reason why so many Libyan youths were caught up in it. I knew what Eter had done in the 1980s. He struck me as no different than the men on my list. And maybe his explanation for why he'd once blown up Americans was no different from what the actual Lockerbie bombers might have told me as well. But I still wanted more. I still wanted to find the bomb maker, Abu Aguila. And Eter, to my surprise, told me that he would help. He suggested I give him a few months to make contact with Abu Aguila, and then we should meet again in Berlin. Yeah. What, what, did, what did he say the last time? The last time he said that he's fine doing it. He said he would do it? Yeah, he had no problem with it. So maybe he's busy. Eter promised to sit for an interview, laying out everything he knew about the Libyan bomb makers, Roland Lockerbie. But several times we planned to meet, and several times he canceled. Should we get out of here? Let's get out of here and let's not give up. Two years later. At this point, Musba Eter was my only link to the man I believed helped prepare the Lockerbie bomb. Back in Berlin, he'd assured me that the dark-skinned bomb expert was still alive and still in Libya. I now started to wonder if Eter would be willing to work directly with the U.S. government to pursue Abu Aguila. Former Lockerbie prosecutor Brian Murtaugh. I guess the number one question I would have is, 
can we have access to this guy? If, if Ken Dornstein can go talk to him. Right. I guess the, the next question is, what, what kind of cooperation can the U.S. government or the Scots get in getting access to Abu Aguila? Right, right. I mean, this isn't easy, I mean, you know, because it's, it's a foreign government in, in a failed state that's, you know, a basket case at this stage. Libyan journalist Suleiman Ali's way. It's not going to be an easy ride. Right. You and I can't do what we did a few years ago in today's Libya, can we? Mm -mm. You know, the bombings and political unrest and uh, all of this terrorism that's happening and, you know, the power vacuum, all of these militias, the carjackings, the, you know, there's an ongoing war now in, in Libya. Libya has descended into its worst violence since the uprising that ousted Muammar Gaddafi three years ago. Dozens of civilians are caught in the crossfire between Libyan special forces and Islamist militants. The country is in chaos. U.S. diplomats are gone from the embassy and Islamic militants are there celebrating. Plunging into the pool at a U.S. embassy in Tripoli. The acrobatics, a celebration. The news from Libya was consistently grim. Some people I talked to there quietly longed for the order of the old regime. In Libya, a trial has begun for the sons of Muammar Gaddafi and more than two dozen of his ex-officials. At the same time in Tripoli, the new government was continuing its trial of former Gaddafi officials. ex-spy chief Abdullah al-Sunusi was among the defendants fenced off behind bars. From corruption to war crimes related to the 2011 uprising. The Libyans were interested in crimes committed during the revolution. But I was listening at home for details about the men on my list. Then, in the middle of the trial, a photo arrived by email from Musba Eater. It was poor quality and came with no explanation. But in the center of the frame was a dark-skinned man. The blue jumpsuit and prison bars made it pretty clear that he was one of the men on trial in Tripoli. So I went looking for every photo I could find of these men on trial. And there, in one of them, behind Abdullah Sanusi, the former intelligence chief, was the dark-skinned man. The more I looked, the more photos I found of him. I captured these images and sent them to Musba Eter in Berlin. He said this was indeed the bomb expert, Abu Aguila, 100%. It was hard to believe I was now looking at the man I've been trying to find for so many years. But I still wanted more confirmation. So I connected with a human rights worker who'd been monitoring the trials in Libya. Hi, Kim. Hey, how are you? We can attempt cameras, but I'm not sure it's going to... I told her who I was looking for. At first, she couldn't find Abu Aguila's name on the list. But then... Wait, wait, wait. Wait, I have a name. It's just written slightly differently. What does it look like to you? I think it's defendant number 28 in this case. So his first name is Abu Ajela. That would be his first name. And to my understanding... The biggest case against him seems to be bomb-making in relation to the 2011 conflict. Charges of setting up bombs in vehicles. Wow. Um, that sounds like him. Yeah. I would say that's for sure the same person. 
the main trial, these guys, there's 36, 37 of them, you know, and, and they're there for what is more or less a show trial. Right. That's Abdullah Sanusi. Okay. But if you look behind Abdullah Sanusi. There's a dark-skinned man. There's a dark-skinned man. You pull all the images and you keep finding a dark-skinned man. Right. But I still would like to know more. So I said, is there, there's 36 men on trial. Is there a charge sheet? Yeah, what are they charged with? Yeah. Number 28 on the charge sheet. And I translate it and you can even grab it and put it into Google Translate. And it's Abu Gila Masood. And the charge is bomb making. My goodness. From a moral standpoint and from an administration of justice standpoint, I can see no good reason not to pursue this. That's not to say you're not going to run into a brick wall. I'm interested in the story that connects LaBelle, yeah, yeah. Lockerbie. So I'm mainly re responsible for collecting evidence. Well, that's really what I'm interested in. I made contact with a German lawyer who had extensive files on Libyan so terror operations. I'm sort of deeply interested in, in all the, the nitty gritty of who did what. And, and there was one person, I think, whose name comes up. Uh, What's his name? Masoud Abu Aguila. Or... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We, we were checking the files, uh, but, but we haven't found uh anything on this name. So what I would suggest is that we meet each other. The lawyer was willing to help me track the bomb expert, Abu Igila, who he said was still wanted for the disco bombing. The lawyer was also interested in the link to Lockerbie. In both cases, the key witness would turn out to be the lawyer's client, Musbah Eter. Since my last trip to Berlin, I learned the US government had contacted Eter. They now wanted to interview him about Lockerbie. Apparently, after word reached them about the link I'd found to the bomb expert, Abu Igila. I believe that the law enforcement people, they are motivated and, and, and they take it for serious. I have no idea. Andreas Schultz is Musbaiter's lawyer. He was careful not to reveal too many details of the ongoing investigation. The competent authority in the US is the FBI for this case. And that means that the FBI was here. About Lockerbie? Recently, yes. But uh, the main problem is time. Time is running against the investigation because these people are at a certain age. But you know, this is in the hands of the US authorities. If we put all the power and capability the US has, I think there are always ways um, to get the hand on, on the culprits of, of Lockerbie. So it's a question of, of the political will. Since the bombing in 1988, the FBI has maintained Lockerbie as an open case. But to my knowledge, they never found a witness with inside information. That is, until I made them aware of Musbah Eter. In the time since I'd last talked to Eter, he had apparently agreed to meet with the FBI at the US Embassy in Berlin. And it was in these meetings, I later found out, that Eter offered new details about Lockerbie. Eter told the FBI that he had no doubt that Lockerbie was carried out by Libyan intelligence. He said the operation was led by Syed Rashid, who spoke often about the need to avenge the US bombing of Tripoli with at least double the casualties. 
during the year before Lockerbie, Eater said, Rashid hatched a plan to take down a U.S. plane. He said Abdul Basit al-Magrahi was part of these early discussions and would be a key member of the team that would carry it out. Most significantly, Eater said he had conversations with the technical expert who he'd worked with on the disco bombing, Abu Aguila, and that Abu Aguila personally told him that he'd helped carry out Lockerbie. Abu Aguila apparently also took responsibility for LaBelle and the bombing of a French passenger plane that killed 170 people. Former FBI investigator Richard Marquise. If he said these things, and there are facts to back up some of the things he says, and it sounds like there are, I don't know why they would not want to bring that to court. If there's somebody alive today that was involved in this and there's knowledge of that, we should be going after them. We should be going after them. We would have gone after them in 1991, if, if, especially if we had this kind of information. We, we would have indicted, certainly would have indicted him. When it came to Abu Aguila, the original Lockerbie investigators did gather important evidence that they were never able to use against him. This evidence centered around the airport in Malta, just off the Libyan coast, where the bomb was said to have originated. Here, they found the landing card that showed Abu Aguila had entered Malta the week before the bombing, complete with the passport number that matched the CIA and Stasi records. They even had Abu Aguila's fingerprints. Then they found the passenger list for the flight that Abu Aguila took home to Tripoli the day of the bombing, possibly after helping arm the device that was then sent on to Flight 103. Joining Abu Aguila on that flight was Abdul Basid al-Magrahi, who was traveling under a known alias. All of this evidence was gathered years ago, but it took Musba Eter's statements in Berlin to apparently tie it all together and potentially generate the first new charges in the case in some 25 years. Suleiman Ali's way. The more we, we go deeper into this, the more we realize we were always on the right track and we were always right about this. Right. But how does that make you feel like, I mean, where are we now? I don't know, it's gone you know, about as far as I can go. You know, what happened inside that embassy, it's out of my hands and Eater's now potentially a witness in a, in a federal case. Uh, he's not, he's not uh, a guy in my movie anymore. I think you, you've pushed as hard as you can push. This is, maybe this is as far as you can go, so. And the whole purpose of finding them was to come face to face, yeah. sit there with someone and say, you know you killed my brother and he was a real person, and I loved him, and other people loved him, yeah. and you shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Norman Atkins. Terrorists killed your brother and my friend. I don't know that we can cause them to feel accountable or to feel shame for what it is that they produced. They ended his life, and there were maybe 270 other David Dornsteins who were aboard that particular flight. And we're not gonna bring those people back. Tim Blake Nelson. I think about him constantly. I think about what was lost when he was lost. 
and how lucky I was to have known David Dornstein. I mean, there are all sorts of ways to pursue meaning from tragedy. And killing David on that plane, the only way that I can make sense of it is, I can't make sense of it. I'm sure there are people in my life who are thinking it's not healthy for you to go on chasing Libyans, chasing some kind of truth that won't bring your brother back and doesn't allow you to live your life fully. Lockerbie relative, Dr. Jim Swire. Do you go on? Is that, that's really what you're yeah. Do I go on? I think only if you can arrange it sufficiently not to allow it to destroy your existing family and your future family and your future happiness, because you can't bring back the people you lost. Right. I just want some sense of certainty. These days, Dr. Jim Swire still maintains his campaign for a new inquiry into the bombing. He still believes that much of the prosecution case against Megrahi and the Libyans doesn't hold up to scrutiny. I want you to see the things that you might not be aware of that raise questions for me. But what I found is that... I walked Dr. Swire through the trail of papers that led me to the man I believe to be the Lockerbie bomb expert. And I tried to explain how this bomb expert Abu Aguila Massoud was tied to the man whose innocence Dr. Swire had been fighting for over the years. So Megrahi is traveling with this person, Abu Aguila Massoud, before the bombing. And it's hard for me to imagine Megrahi himself wasn't involved. This person is a known bomb expert traveling with Megrahi the day of Lockerbie. Mm. If this story that I'm putting together here were true, it would challenge a lot of what you have come to believe. Mm. I don't know what to make of that. But um, on the other hand, I'm not the sort of guy who wants to sit around and watch this sort of thing dismissed as um, not worth pursuing simply because it doesn't match what we think we know. But you, you've got to take it to the next step, I'm afraid. <laughs> Been great to see Thank you. you. Yeah, Terrific. Over the course of the year after this meeting, Dr. Swire continued to fight against the original verdict in the Lockerbie case. And I continued to develop evidence about the Libyan bomb expert, Abu Igila. As I gathered more information, I shared it all with Dr. Swire and he always responded in a very thoughtful way. In the end, he allowed that Abu Aguila and others in the Qaddafi inner circle may have played a role in Lockerbie, but he remained wholly committed to one core belief, that his friend Abdul Basit al-Magrahi was innocent. Magrahi himself was now dead, of course. And so was the likely mastermind of the bombing, Syed Rashid. And Abdullah Sanusi, the former intelligence chief, has been on trial in Tripoli. And in the summer of 2015, 
he was finally sentenced. A Libyan judge says, first, the defendants to be punished by firing squad, Abdullah Mohamed Sanusi. In news from Libya, the former head of intelligence and eight others have been sentenced to death for committing war crimes during the crackdown against the 2000s. Abu Aguila was sentenced as well. Abu Aguila Mohamed Khair. He was given 10 years for making bombs during the Libyan revolution. But thus far, he faces no charges for his possible role in Lockerbie. Hafed al-Gwell. I mean, the issue of Lockerbie. The biggest victim is the truth, the simple truth. Forget about indictments, about who goes to jail. It's the simple truth of what happened. Why? Because nobody has a stake in, in telling you the truth. The FBI and the Justice Department told me they can't comment publicly about the Lockerbie case, which remains an ongoing investigation. And though it's been some 25 years since they last filed charges in the case, they maintain that they've been working aggressively to bring those responsible for the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 to justice. I think that David would be proud of you for both keeping his memory alive, but also by doing something that is very much in the spirit of what David would have done had he been in your shoes. I hope that when this project is done, you will close this chapter and move on with your life and keep David's memory alive, particularly by communicating all of the best things about him to your children. Go to pbs.org slash frontline and explore an interactive guide to filmmaker Ken Dornstein's investigation. I kept coming back to those images I'd gotten out of state TV and living. Hear more from Ken about his brother in a special podcast. I was the keeper of every ambition that he had. Learn more about the ongoing unrest in Libya. There's no justice to be had. Watch all three episodes of My Brother's Bomber or listen to audio versions of the series. Connect to the Frontline community on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for our newsletter at pbs.org frontline. Frontline is made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major support for Frontline is provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is available at macfound.org. Additional support is provided by the Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The John and Helen Glessner Family Trust, supporting trustworthy journalism that informs and inspires. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. The Wincote Foundation. And by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major support from John and Joanne Hagler. Corporate funding for Frontline is provided by Brigham and Women's Hospital.
My Brother's Bomber was written, produced, and directed by Ken Dornstein and co-produced by Brian Funk and Timothy Grusha. The executive producer of Frontline is Rainey Aronson-Rath. Frontline's My Brother's Bomber is available on DVD. To order, visit shoppbs.org or call 1-800-PLAY-PBS. Frontline is also available for download on iTunes. Thank you.